Let's rise and sing this great hymn of praise. Lord, we crown you with many crowns. We give you all of our praise. Lord, help us that our praise of you, that our giving glory and honor and praise to you would never fail, would never fade. Now, we know that we are just mere humans uh, capable of failing all the time, and we do, and we know this. And we ask your forgiveness, Lord, and we pray that we would be uh, faithful in giving you praise and giving you the honor that you deserve. Help us, Lord, with your, the power of your Holy Spirit. Encourage us and enable us to give you praise and serve and, and worship you as we should. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, we ask, go ahead and be seated. Uh, you can uh, 
grab one of these blue cards. It's called a FBCO Connection Card. And if you're with us maybe for the first or second time, we would love to know who you, you and your family are and how we can minister to you. So fill that out, please, and uh, put that in the offering plate. Or you can take it to the Connection Center in, in the lobby out there. Uh, there'll be some people out there to greet you. And as always, uh, everybody has access to a prayer request card and uh, the staff and pastor it will be faithful to, to pray for you. Uh, you know, I say that we, we are. Let me say this. Sometimes we can't meet because of whatever. But we still always get these requests out to, all, to the pastor and all the staff. And so even if we're not together praying, we pray for you, I promise you. Okay? So, so take those prayer requests seriously. And, and, uh, and we, we obviously will too, we promise you. Okay? Uh, so... Uh, the pastor is going to start uh, a little bit of the spiritual warfare, the the uh, put on the armor of Christ, and so we're going to sing some some armor songs today. This uh, this song here reminds us that the church has to arise and be the army that God has called us to be. We're not just a passive, you know, uh, we'll just do our thing and God, you do your thing and. Everything will turn out good in the end. No, he there. There's certain things he's called us to do. Amen. Uh, to be his uh, to be his servants, and this song reminds us of those things. So let's let's sing this together. Yeah. 
Well, that was just perfect. You stood up, and the next song is stand up. Stand up for Jesus. We are soldiers of the cross. Amen. today. Lord God, we uh, want to come before you, Lord, and be your humble servants and be obedient and uh, give you the offerings and the tithes that you so richly deserve and really belong to you in the first place. And we're just simply stewards. We know this. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful in that task. We thank you for the uh, gracious and, and loving and giving body of Christ that you've placed here in Ozark. And uh, last year was such an example of gracious giving, and, and Lord, we pray um, that we would uh, do the same, maybe even more, uh, in our love and in our obedience this year. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I've got a scripture verse for you to set up a song. We're going to introduce a new song, and um, we're not so much going to read this as we are going to examine it. There were 44,760 capable warriors in the armies of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Now remember, they're capable, and they're warriors. They were all skilled in combat, and they were armed with shields and swords and bows. Now, is the writer trying to sugarcoat how good this army was? No. In and of themselves, physically and mentally and 
they were ready. They were warriors. And they went to war. Fast forward, they cried out to God during the battle, and he answered their prayer because they were skilled and they were armed and they were mighty. Answered their prayer because they trusted him. There's a real lesson to be learned there, folks. And let's learn this song together today.
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I pray that during this next series on spiritual warfare, on putting on the full armor of God, that we will learn to rely less as the, Israel, as the Israelite army did on their preparation, on their skill, on their equipment, on their knowledge, on all the physical and mental and psychological things that we can do. What you call us to do, you call us to be ready, but that the dependence is on you. And Lord, we pray that in these next weeks, we would be chiseled just a little bit more to the image of Jesus who totally depended on God the Father. And we just ask this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. next section of scripture is no doubt one of the most famous parts of the entire book of Ephesians. The armor of God passage. It is also what many would refer to as the classic text on spiritual warfare. Now I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I was born 7-7-1970. And as time rocked on, and I, I first remember growing up in a church where our pastor and, and visiting pastors were not afraid to broach the subject of spiritual warfare. So Natalie and I both grew up in a church where we were taught um, to remember that we are to be vigilant. We are to be sober-minded because we have an adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion who prowls around seeking whom he may devour. But also grew up in a time where a lot of those fictional books were written. This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti and Piercing the Darkness. Many guys wrote, on, wrote books, uh, fictionally, fictional novels about spiritual warfare. We had movies depicting the people's grotesque imaginations regarding spiritual warfare. Uh, you could attend seminars on the subject of spiritual warfare. You name it under the banner of spiritual warfare, and it has been utilized in my lifetime. So before we dig in to the text before us, and until I give you an outline, which will be next week, of how we're going to tackle uh, chapter 6, 10 through 20, I think it's really important that we gain this morning a biblical understanding of spiritual warfare. So, if you've derived your views on spiritual warfare from novels, then you're going to be in trouble. Okay? We begin today with a great need to understand spiritual warfare biblically, but also to understand the immense dangers in spiritual warfare, both if you ignore it and if you go beyond the bounds of what the holy revealed word of God has to say to us. So you pray for me, uh, and I'll pray for you as we go through the teaching of the Word of God in, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Let me begin this morning just reading down through verse 12. 
Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, some of you are saying, whew, finally, we're going to move to the end of the book of Ephesians. Be strong, imperative command, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, I haven't studied grammatically everything connected to that, but I did study the Greek grammar concerning because I was interested in this. Put on versus be strong in the Lord. This is important, okay? So what the grammar lends itself to with the middle voice and everything else is to put on the whole armor of God is to be strong in the Lord. That's important, okay? The connection can't be missed. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. What is it to be strong in the Lord? You've put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Listen closely. Schemes, right? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right, so on your outline, are you ready? We're going to do kind of an overview, uh, an understanding of spiritual warfare, so we can go into the text understanding where we are, okay? First thing I want you to see in your outline, is there some dangerous thinking when it comes to spiritual warfare? Well, there's dangerous thinking in the church, and there's certainly dangerous thinking on the outside. So first, under that heading of dangerous thinking... There is the danger of dismissing spiritual warfare as a relic of superstition and parentheses inherited from an ancient biblical worldview. So there's this propensity, let's say in church life, right? For us to dismiss it as something that is kind of archaic. You know, we're up with the times, right? This is 2023. And so there's this danger of doing this. So what I would say to you as a church family is that the majority of us, I think this is true, if not all of us, would say we believe the Bible. I'm waiting for a response. Yes, we believe the Bible. So we readily say we can't dismiss spiritual warfare. Why? Because it's in the Bible. But I will remind you that we live in enlightened days. Right? We risk the danger of chalking things up to medieval thinking or superstitious things. And why is that the case? Because in our Western civilization, during the Enlightenment, what did it foster? It fostered a closed system understanding of reality or a worldview that was closed off to anything on the outside. So post-enlightenment thought, that's what you live in today, is closed off to the idea of the supernatural in general. Okay? It is closed off to God in particular. All you have to do is watch MSNBC and CNN and the list goes on and you'll find out that they're closed off to the idea of God. They're especially closed off to the idea of a real personal devil and real demons. What is this caused? What is it called? A closed system. It's called naturalism. 
Reality is merely reduced to physical particles and impersonal laws. Life is merely a meaningless competition among organisms that exist only to survive and reproduce. It sees the mind no more than an emergent property of biochemical reactions. Did y'all know that's what you are? Right? So naturalism, by and large, is the worldview of our day. And it reduces everything to a natural cause. And nothing exists outside of what you can see. There's nothing outside of that. Young people, you realize that that's what you're taught pretty much in school. You do get this, right? This is pretty much what, we're, what you would get in public school if you hemmed them up in a corner and asked most people what they believe. I'm not denying the fact that we have believers in the school system, okay? That's a, that's a truth. But if you move particularly beyond public school and go to college, Katie, bar the door. You've just entered Babylonian University. And so naturalism is the thought of the day. So it reduces everything to a natural cause. And nothing exists beyond what you can see. So I challenge you here not to dismiss this because our worldview could be more closed off than we realize. Think of your worldview as a big square. And everything in that square is the stuff that you can see, that you can taste, and that you can touch. Then outside of this is the stuff you can't see, you can't taste, and you can't touch. Naturalism says that square is basically closed off. The only reality is the stuff inside of the square. Now, for most of us who acknowledge that the Bible is the Word of God, then we have to say, well... We believe that it is open and it's not completely closed off, but it's just that right-hand top corner of one inch that goes around the top of my square. That's the only part that's really open. A biblical worldview says that inside of that square is a lot of dotted lines. And the contours are dotted and it's everywhere inside of that. Why? Because there is the supernatural and there is the natural. There is the visible. And there is the invisible. A biblical worldview about spiritual reality, folks, is in direct antithesis with naturalism. Because we believe there's a sovereign God inside of that square. We also believe that He rules all things. But there's also other things going on. There are supernatural beings such as Satan, angels, and demons. So folks, number one, out of the gate... Here's the danger. And the danger is that you will dismiss spiritual warfare because you really think you live in a closed system. But you don't. Either you don't or the Bible's wrong. And the Bible makes it unequivocally clear. Okay? And that's why Christians today are under more fire than ever before. Because it's not really like the world likes having you around. And we think they do. But they don't. So... That's the first danger. The second danger is on the other far end of the spectrum when it comes to spiritual warfare. And this is to attribute everything in a restricted way to demonic causes. So y'all understand the two polar opposites. To be, to be in the realm of, being, of spiritual warfare being closed off from you. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you're one of those people that sees a demon under every rock. Okay? There's this particular understanding. You would see the devil behind every sound system. 
behind every monitor, behind every piano, and sitting on every chair. Okay? This would be thinking that goes far beyond what the Word of God actually says. All these fictional books, movies, depict the spiritual world, which is at core, not all of it, but at the core, it's unbiblical. Let's be honest. A great deal of fiction and fantasy and nonsense and nuttiness and downright heresy flourishes in the church under the guise of spiritual warfare today. Okay? So, demonic causes, you would think, are behind everything. From a common cold to the fact that you missed your parking spot at FBCO this morning. Right? This is reality and this is the way some people think. People think, well, there's got to be special modes of demonic intercession. So this is part of a cause and effect worldview that not only accepts and embraces supernaturalism, but has ended up using Satan and his demons as a paradigm to which all of reality must be interpreted. Okay? So whereas one polar opposite is to think you're in a closed system to deny anything biblical with a worldview to say that you're not in a closed system, the other end would be a dangerous thinking called pagan dualism. Do you all know that exists in the world? It may actually exist in your theological sphere of thinking if you haven't tested it. What, is, what does this pagan dualism do? Well, this actually puts God and Satan on the same plane. It creates a worldview that is anti-biblical. The biblical worldview is that God is king. Our God is king over all creation. This way of thinking of pagan dualism creates a worldview where there are two equal opposing forces, God and the devil, and this is the only this is not only pagan to the core, folks, that is rank unbiblical teaching to say there's any equality whatsoever. So the end result of pagan dualism is that we begin to distort what biblical reality really is. But you'll also end up minimizing truths that are so vitally important for you to be able to withstand the enemy in our day. It affects certain things. If you believe in pagan dualism, then you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Are y'all listening? You won't believe in indwelling sin if you believe in pagan dualism. You won't think about the responsibility before God of your own sinful actions if you believe in pagan dualism. You won't believe in the power of regenerating grace where God takes you from a place where you're dead and makes you alive. And you won't believe in the power and the glory of the Son of God who's overcome all powers and principalities and is seated at the right hand of the Father. As a matter of fact, I just preached you Ephesians 1, right? This is given clearly for us in the Word. So these central doctrines that are so important to your life and practice will be ignored if you come away with a pagan understanding of how this world works. Now, the central doctrines should not be diminished. But we also have to understand that there's a paradigm in this world. God is the king. Our God rules the world. Okay? There's a danger here. And it's not the danger of neglect. It's the danger of a narrow view of God. So, it's a narrow view of God. It's a, it's a narrow view of an understanding of where Satan and his demons fit in. So, as we approach this passage, we need to avoid 
those two dangers. I'm a quarter of the way through my sermon. Okay? Those dangers are real. Ask yourself the question. Did I come in here with an understanding of a closed system? Do I really understand there is the visible and the invisible? And on the other end of the spectrum, have I moved too far in my theological thinking of pagan dualism where I really think that Satan is equal to God? Bad theology. Really, really, really bad stuff if you think about that. Okay? All right, number two. What is the biblical understanding of spiritual warfare? All right? First, Satan is a real, Satan is real, and he is an angelic person created by God, and he is an adversary of God, Christ, and Christ's people. And I word that specifically. It's important for you to hear that. He's an adversary of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also God, okay? And he is an adversary of God's people. Does the Bible make an apology for believing that the devil is real? Absolutely not, okay? The Bible does not present the devil as some kind of personification of abstract evil. The Bible says he is real. The Bible says he is a real person. The Bible presents him as real, personal, and a spirit being who is an adversary of God the Father, God the Son, and the people of God. This, of course, is revealed clearly in which book? The Apocalypse, right? It's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation, right? There's only one Apocalypse, one unveiling, and we know from that book that there is cosmic warfare uh, from our enemy, the devil. But it goes way back further than that, doesn't it? Of what the Bible teaches us about the enemy. After the fall of man, what does God do? God mediates out curses upon the man, the woman, and also who? An abstract, uh, impersonal picture of evil? No, it's mediated out against a personal person, and his name is Satan. He then pronounces this curse upon him. Your head, your head will be crushed by a heel that you will bruise. That's told to the enemy himself. Then we learn of antagonism and enmity between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent. And you can trace that activity, the devil's activities, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Yet, there's something very important to remember. With the exception of a few little tidbits of info scattered here and there, the Bible does not focus upon the devil. The Bible focuses upon the Lord God. He's the subject. He's the theme. You're, you certainly see this constant undercurrent of the enemy. We have an enemy. Have you read the book of Job lately? The book of Zechariah. You see this clearly. This understanding is encapsulated for us clearly in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Your adversary. Who? A personification of evil? No. The devil, like a roaring lion, goes about seeking who is going to devour. In Revelation 12, we, we certainly see this cosmic battle going on. And what do you learn in, in Revelation 12? He's a deceiver. 
He is a dragon. He is an accuser. He's the serpent, right? And what does he try to do? Well, we've just gone through uh, teaching, through the Advent. And one particular place in Revelation 12 that is clear is the enemy was not happy that the Son of God was going to be born on earth. Right? And Revelation 12 tells us that he will go after the man-child Christ. He actually stirs up Herod to wipe out all the babies so that he would kill the Christ. And the next scene is that the man-child is born. And he actually ascends into glory as the conqueror. But is Satan's purpose distorted? Well, at one point, yes. But he's not finished. What does the Bible teach us? Just quickly, I'm not preaching through Revelation. Some of you would like for me to. But chapter 12, verse 12 says this. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on them. But woe to you on earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. In other words, he's on a leash And it's not long until neck-popping time. But in reality, listen to verse 17. Here's what he's doing now. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, and he went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who is that? On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he stood on the sand. He stood on the land and the sea. The offspring is the church. That's you if you're saved. So what is he doing now? He is against not only God, not only the Son of God, but he is an adversary of the people of God. So, the devil is a real devil, and he's a real adversary of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and God's people. Second, are you writing this down? Second, is to understand biblically in reference to spiritual warfare that part of Christ's work... And part of Christ's kingdom is to overthrow the work and the kingdom of darkness. Now, why did I say it like that? Part of Christ's work. Because that's not all of his work, right? But part of his work is uh, to overthrow the work and the kingdom of darkness. I say part because there are so many other dimensions that are greater even of this. Think about it like this. The cross was the ultimate cosmic exorcism. Right? It was the ultimate cosmic exorcism. Jesus would use words that vindicate the language I've just used. In John 12, he will tell his disciples on the night that he was betrayed that the prince of this world was about to be cast down. This is what the king was going to do through his cross. Do you remember the language about a kingdom? And Jesus begins to talk about a strong man. Y'all remember this? Wave at me. He says, a strong man can't be, or he says this first, that a kingdom that will not be able to stand if it's divided against itself. He says, you cannot plunder the strong man's property unless you first bind the strong man. And who is Jesus referring to? He was identifying Satan as the usurper of the owner of the house and that Jesus was about to bind the strong man and take his property. That means part of what he came to do was to overtake. In Matthew 4, 1 through 11, we call this the temptation of Christ. 
we see that the Lord Jesus Christ overcomes him by the, with the word of God. But ultimately, he overcomes by his cross and by his resurrection. So he overthrows, in part, each time Christ cast out a demon in the course of the gospel narratives. What was it about? It was to display the fact that the kingdom of God had come. The strong man was being bound and his property was being freed. Paul will help us. See the cosmic proportions of this when you look at Colossians. Listen to chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers. Who's the he? Jesus Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. Hallelujah. That's good preaching, isn't it? He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in himself. That's what Christ the Lord did. So... We're going to revisit Colossians 2.15 eventually through our study. And we know what Ephesians 6 has already said. So folks, think about this. Through the cross, he was disarming the rulers and authorities. And he was making a public display of them because of his victory over them. And listen, this is one of my favorite texts in the Bible because it's one of the favorite books that I... My favorite books in the Bible. But Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Here's another aspect of part of Christ overcoming darkness. Verse 14, chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see the motif of what Christ is doing? He actually takes death itself and turns it on its head because of resurrection and defeats the enemy with the very thing that he wants to hold your throat to and that's your coming death. Christ victoriously conquered death. So part of what he's doing is to establish the kingdom and to, and to remove us. <laughs> that's the next point. Okay, I'm not going to give that too, too quick. He is the real adversary of Christ and his people and the reality is that through the cross and the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ has overcome the power of the devil and darkness. Third, part of our salvation experience is deliverance from the power of Satan and his kingdom. Part of your deliverance. Now, it's one thing to say, yes, there's a personal devil. I get it. 1 Peter 5, 8, he's out there. And yes, through the cross and resurrection, Jesus won the victory over the power of darkness. But folks, it's something totally different to be able to say, you know what? Part of my salvation experience was to be delivered from the dominion of darkness and the blinding effects of satanic deception and to be transferred out of darkness into his glorious light. Did you know that that's exactly what Colossians says has happened to you? This is the language in the Bible, Colossians chapter 1. Listen to verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So folks, we're born into this world as subjects of not only sin and self and the world. But you're born into this world as a subject of the devil. There's only two places to be, of your father, the devil, or of your heavenly father, the Lord. 
Now you say, preacher, that's pretty strong language to be telling us that. I'm telling you that because that's what the Bible says. You were under the dominion of the enemy. His rule. You belonged to him. And you were in a place of darkness. And then by the glorious grace and transforming power of the gospel, God takes you from the kingdom of the evil one and he places you in the kingdom of his beloved son. Hallelujah! We ought to get excited about that, shouldn't we? If you can't, your wood's wet. Right? Listen to how clear this is for us. And you, you may get a little bent sideways with me saying, before you met Christ, you were of the enemy. But I'm telling you, folks, you were. You say, well, I haven't dabbled in the occult. I've never even played a Ouija board, preacher. Needless to say, I'm not involved with Dungeons and Dragons. But here's the deal. Satan's biggest weapons are not Ouija boards and Dungeons and Dragons. His weapons are lies. And the pleasures of this world and half-truths. Things to distract you away from the knowledge of Christ. That's his goal. So if you're in Christ, the Lord, and you're born of God, then you must realize that you were once in darkness. Under the power and authority of the devil in darkness. And now you've been brought into the kingdom of light. Hallelujah. You've been delivered from the grasp of the evil one. Some of us know this experience by hand. You think back on your life and you realize how blinded you were from the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? He had you in bondage of all types of things. You today take responsibility that you were an enemy of God. You know full well that you were in bondage. You take responsibility for the captivity, but you also realize that you were serving God's adversary, the devil. However, today, thanks be to God who has given us the victory through Christ Jesus the Lord. Christ transferred me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And he made me his own. That is awesome. That is awesome. Okay, number four. Right? Our struggle then as believers is spiritual warfare. Okay? If you wrote this down, you know where we're headed. Right? We went from one to understand that he's real. But we also dealt with a few things in the, in the meantime to help you with a biblical awareness. But here, here's the understanding, folks. We're in a battle. There is a spiritual warfare. Yes, it's against the very one that you've been delivered from. Okay? As long as we live in the tension between the already and the not yet, Ephesians 6.12 is a reality. We live in the reality of 1 Peter 5.8. This is part of the battle for us. It's not all of the battle. If all you do is spend all of your time trying to rebuke the devil and bind demons here and there, you're going to end up a spiritual flop. You will, Right? You won't make a progress in faith and grace. However, if you don't think you have an enemy and you don't think you're in a war, then you've just set yourself up for destruction. I'm warning you. Okay, what is the significance of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20? Y'all ready? What is the biblical framework for spiritual warfare? Now, have I told y'all that 6, 10 through 20 is in the greater context of the book of Ephesians. Duh. Right? You can't divorce the pericope, the section, from the rest of the book. Okay? This is important. The verse clearly reveals 
a view first of world system, of a world system that is closed, is flawed. Now when you read that text, it reminds us that there are spiritual realities out there. That there are schemes of the enemy. And it's dangerous. This text also provides us a sane approach to spiritual warfare. That avoids those two polar opposite extremes that we discussed. Here's what I've read. I've read over chapter 6, 10 through 20 a bunch of times. And you can read it seven ways to Sunday and notice many things are absent from there. There's not anything taught of a mode of deliverance. Do y'all see it? There's not anything taught about exorcism formulas. This is the most classic text on spiritual warfare. And consider what's not in the text. Okay? Just so that you're balanced and you have a sane approach. It disabuses us. You say sometimes, preacher, use word. That all, all that means it, it persuades us that a belief is mistaken. Okay? Let me persuade you that your belief of a closed system is mistaken and you need biblical sanity. If you don't know you're in a war, you're not going to fight. You need biblical sanity in order to fight a war effectively. So we've been in Ephesians for a while. That's common sense, right? Because you've been sitting here listening to it. And this particular text fits into the broader context of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters is on what Christ has done for you. It's called doctrine. We, we use the Greek term, indic we use grammar like indicatives. Why? Because it's just one thing after another. It starts off with that God chose you in Him before the foundation of the world. Which is temporal. He did it in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus, before he ever made the world. Hallelujah. It starts with you understanding how awesome God is. And how he knows all things. And how he's able, through his sovereignty, how can I say this? He sees to it. I don't know what else to say. If you've ever read the Bible, we serve a God who sees to it. He accomplishes it. And we learn these things for a doctrinal foundation for life. Ephesians 1 through 3. Okay? But when you get to chapter 4, what happens? Application time. Right? You've got all this foundation. And how does this doctrine work out in application in life? So beginning in chapter 4 verse 1, we have all this application. So what, what do you know? Well, 6, 10 through 20, finally, brothers, is the final climactic teaching on applying what you've learned about Jesus into your life. Y'all are looking at me real strange. Some of you are. But that's what this is. Finally, brothers, we'd have to say this is the climactic conclusion of the application. What has he told us? He wants you to know something about marriage. Is that application? You're going to go home with your wife. And you're going to go home with that man. And application comes out real fast. Because you're two sinners living under the same roof. And then you've got all these nuts and bolts about family life. And children obeying their parents. And how fathers treat their children. But as he does this, the great apostle begins to unfold life together in the church. The unity and how we should treat one another. So we've got believers, married, families, so forth. But he gets to this last section on how all this should impact our life. And he doesn't conclude with more nuts and bolts about how to get along in the workplace. 
and marriage, but he ends on the battlefield. Now, am I the only one that sees this? Folks, he ends on the battlefield. The climactic section of Paul's practical teaching ends with a cosmic perspective. Outside your little square of what's really, hopefully inside of your little square, you understand all the dots and lines. So as we study this passage, understand, folks, this is application. This is real world Christian living. You are in a war. Real life application. This is also the second thing I would say is this text compels us to stay focused on Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that many of us come to this text and they have all these formulas on putting on your armor every single morning. I put on armor one, two, three, four, five. If we read this passage correctly and you apply what's in the text and you're focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, that little formula goes out the window. That's not the way to approach this text. The Ephesians did not have a closed system, did they? Does anybody remember my first sermon? Let me go back and preach it. You know what it was over? It was over Acts chapter 19. Did they live in a world, in a worldview inside of a square that had a lot of dots and broken lines everywhere? You better believe it. They were everywhere. They lived with a worldview that acknowledged that spiritual powers were very real. You need only to read Acts chapter 19 when God brings the gospel to Ephesus as a beachhead. There was occult practices, there was witchcraft, there was demonism, and there were hundreds and thousands set free by Jesus Christ and the gospel. Hear this, Ephesian believers. Here's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 6. Here's what Paul is teaching them in the book of Ephesians. Jesus Christ is the one who has already been exalted. He's already been magnified above any principality and every power and every name that has ever been named. And that's found clearly in Ephesians 1, 19 through 20. And if you remember that intro to Ephesians, you know what that meant to them. They had their luck charms. They had their amulets. They had their demons that they, they were fearful of and they thought they could call out this particular name and that particular name. Folks, hear this. There's no greater name than the name of Jesus, the Son of God. There's no higher power, no greater God. He's the only God, right? And so Paul wants them to see this. Listen, Jesus is more exalted than any spirit that may pertain to your little spiritual worldview. He's greater, okay? He's exalted to the right hand of the Father and has been given all authority, all rule. All dominion. His name is above any name that could ever be named. So Paul is applying this in warfare. He's applying his exalted rule above all. All power. All authority. So he will then unfold the armor. Here's the way many see this. Paul is chained to a Roman centurion guard. Right? And Paul says, Cat's got something on his feet. Shoes. Yeah. That'll work just right. Feet shy with the preparation of the gospel. That works good. Oh, well, dude's got a cool belt on. Surrounds his loins. Ah, that's the belt of truth. Well, he's got a hefty shield. And that's a shield of faith. Man, what a helmet he has on. Concussions may not be the protocol of the day in the NFL if this was the case. Chained to a Roman soldier. I would submit to you that if you think this is what this is about, you're wrong. 
This is not an outline of a Roman soldier that Paul is chained to. What we have here is a depiction of the Messiah, Yahweh, the King. And if you don't believe me, you ask, right? Isaiah chapter 59. Turn over there. Here's what you have in this text. You've got our victorious king who came arrayed for battle. And he alone can win the victory in your life. He alone. Listen to Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 16. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. Anybody ever heard of that before? And a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. And he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds so will he repay wrath to his adversaries. Repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west. And his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. I want you to know that's exactly who Paul is talking about. This is the mighty one. So... The language comes from Isaiah 59, 17, where the Messiah himself is Yahweh. He's our warrior king. The armor of God is in reality God's armor or Christ's armor himself. And so when you think about putting on the armor of God, don't think about putting on ambulance or good luck charms. Think about putting Christ himself on you or in you who is the exalted one above all principalities, all powers, and all rulers. For today... This brief intro demands, some of you think brief, right? That we, re, we realize that we're in a war. Believers, y'all getting this? Here's the application. You are in a war. Sleepy Christians that don't know that they're in a war don't do well. We're in a war, okay? If you name the name of Jesus, I remind you that the devil is real, demons are real, and there is a war. To deny this reality is to blindly run off into destruction. So if you're a Christian, this text demands that you say, I'm in a war. Okay? When I wake up in the morning, I can rest assured that the devil woke up before me. And so can you. He's waiting. He's lurking. There are spiritual realities that teach us this for sure. The Bible tells us this, that not, not that you go Full force mode in the morning and start with everything demonized. But the reality is, however, you are in a war. The Bible, it screams at us as believers to wake up. We're in a war. Secondly, if you are in... So, first, if you're in Christ, there's something serious on the line. We're in a war. If you're not in Christ... You've never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord in your life. You've never embraced Him by faith. Let's take this a step forward. You're not a follower of the king. Because in reality, if you don't follow him, you don't know him. Are you a follower of Jesus? If, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I tell you this. You need this morning to wake up to the reality that you're in the enemy's kingdom. 
That's a, that's a huge reality in this text. If you're transferred out of a kingdom into the kingdom of his beloved son, if you haven't been transferred out, you're in Satan's kingdom. That is the reality of what we're saying. And you may say, I'm morally clean, preacher. I'm a respected man in the community. I have a six-figure income. Externally, from all appearances, I'm doing great. But if you're not in Christ, and hear this clearly, you are of the dominion of darkness. That's what the Bible teaches. And salvation will not come for you by someone praying over you to exercise a demon out of you. Salvation comes by repentance and belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ only for salvation. So, Christians, let's learn to fight the war biblically. Please don't go buy all the fictional books on spiritual warfare before next week. Let's let the Word of God speak to us. Let's stick to the Word of God, not formulas, not fiction, not the experiences of others. Please don't follow the experiences of others who tell you they know what it's about, especially if it's opposite of what the Bible teaches. We don't exegete the Bible by experience. We exegete our experiences by the Bible. And if one of them is wrong, I bet you I know which one is wrong. It's your experience. Right? So, we let the Word of God be our standard. One last thing. And I tell you this almost with a broken heart. Almost with complete confidence in my God who is sovereign. We did not arrive at this place in the life of our church by accident. I am preaching this text today by sovereign decree from God. Why? Because we need to hear it. It's in a time in the life of our church where we need this. We need to wake up and realize that our battle is not against flesh and blood. That's in the text, by the way. Some of you need to get over your attitudes about others in this church. Some of you need to man up and woman up and live like you're supposed to live. Hello. I know I'm plowing right next to the corn, but you need it. And I need it too, right? Our war is not against flesh and blood. I didn't make that up. It's in the text. Don't be ignorant. Don't be foolish. Listen to the word of the Lord, okay? I don't believe for one solitary second that we're in this passage accidentally. And if you believe it's accidental, then you're in the wrong church. I can tell you that now. If you think this is an accident, you are in the wrong church. This is the word of God. John Stott says it as good as I've ever heard it. He said this. Is God's plan to create another society, namely the church? Is it? Have you all read Ephesians with me? What is God doing? He's raising up a people for himself. Right? The church. He says this. Then they, principalities and powers, will do their utmost to destroy it. Y'all believe that? Has God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, broken down the walls dividing human beings and different races and cultures from each other? Has he? Have you read Ephesians 2? He broke down the wall of division. And all our country wants to do is build it back up. That's not an accident. That's the enemy. Whatever God builds up, he wants to tear down. And we're in the middle of a war in our country because the enemy is winning. 
And even among Christians who have gone woke or go broke, you're missing it too that the gospel can change anybody, anywhere, anytime. It's not about race. It's about grace. It's about God changing lives. So, he says this. Then the devil through his emissaries will strive to rebuild the division. Does God intend for his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony? To live together in purity? Then you can rest assured the powers of hell will scatter among them the seeds of discord and sin. It is with these powers that the Bible says we wage war. All right, folks. God has brought us to this place. And we might be tempted to say, well, we got this battle behind us. We've established this particular principle. And now we're just coasting. And life is good. Folks, you better wake up. If this says anything to us, it says FBCO, you better be on guard. If it says anything to us, it reminds us that the devil will continually attempt to undo what God has done. And I'm convinced that our adversary, the devil, and his emissaries are busier than they've ever been before. If you take the unity of this body for granted, I'm asking you as the pastor, don't do it. Don't take this unity for granted. What God has preserved, Satan is seeking to destroy. He designs, he schemes, so I say to you, don't fall asleep. As Jesus said to his disciples, watch and pray. God is doing great works. We know that. We've seen people come to faith in Christ that we never would have believed would have been somebody who come to faith in Christ. We're seeing God work. But when you go into the strong man's house, folks, you can expect repercussions. Okay? We know this is true. The enemy wants to destroy faith and obedience. He is busy trying to create casualties of faith. He's attacking the health of marriages. Are y'all listening? He's attacking families. I hope you figured out something. There is nothing sacred to the devil. Please hear me, church family. Not one thing is sacred to the devil. It's not like he says, wow, what a sweet family. Let's just turn our attention toward a family who drinks alcohol. Do you think you got to be smarter than that, don't you? Please listen to me. It's not like he says, well, they got nice kids. So let's just go after the person who's in pornography. If you're in pornography and you're not serving Christ, he's got you right where he wants you. Right? So, as, as godly and biblical as we try to make our families, you need to understand that the more you advance in the faith, the more your family advances in godliness or in your marriage, the devil's going to seek to undermine and destroy and attack. Please hear me. The devil is for divorce. Don't be foolish. The devil is for infidelity. And teenagers, the devil is in full favor of teenage rebellion. Nothing is sanctified to the enemy. Please hear me clearly. He's a big promoter of teenage rebellion. And I want to remind you teenagers, you're better off when you disrespect your children according to the Proverbs to have your eyeballs plucked out by a crow in the wilderness. That's in the Bible. Yeah, I know that was strong. You're you're welcome, okay? But that's what the Bible says. We'd be foolish to think, well, I believe the Bible. Our church stands on the Word. Therefore, we don't need to believe and don't need to worry about the devil. No, 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 okay? 
Isaac Watts put it like this. Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, O Lord. I will bear the toil and endure the pain supported by thy word. Folks, this must be our posture as our church. We need to be the kind of people who say, let's help each other in warfare. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And if you're wrestling against your neighbor in this church, then you're not helping one another one iota in warfare. As a matter of fact, you're killing one another. You're falling dead in line with what the enemy wants you to do. Let's help each other learn. Let's help each other fight. Let's help each other acknowledge the triumph that we already have in Christ. We are all united to the one who has been exalted above all power, all authority, and dominion. May the Lord our God at the end of the day receive all the glory and all the praise. Great God, Lord, I know that this, this hits at heartstrings. But Lord, it's because we know we have a real enemy. And his emissaries are seeking to destroy God, help us. God, help us not be ignorant of the enemy's devices. Father, let us just pause and thank Jesus that he's given us the victory. We are yours. And you are ours. And we're so thankful, according to 1 Corinthians 15, that we have the victory that is in Christ Jesus the Lord. You transferred us out of the kingdom of Satan and darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son and light. Thank you for moving us from darkness into light. We thank you for it. But also, Lord, remind us that the very one you've delivered us from is the very one we wage war against. God, help us. And we understand that if there's any victory, it's in Jesus. We focus upon our mighty warrior who has accomplished the purposes. James would remind us to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Lord, there's so many things that we're going to learn and we're taught by your word, but help us start off with the right understanding. God, deliver anyone from a polar opposite extreme understanding. Help us have a biblical framework of who we are in Christ and what you've accomplished and what the word teaches. The enemy has his schemes. He has his designs. But Lord God, your word is greater than the enemy. And even greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. God help us. If there's a lost person here, may you transfer them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. How? By believing the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died to save sinners. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. Sing together. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, come ye wounded, weak and poor. There's a harbor for the broken, where the hopeless are reborn. He is able, he is able, he is able, Christ is able still to save. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, sing to him our songs of praise. Come ye lost, come ye lost, afraid forgotten, come ye wandering souls find rest. 
at your heart's door. He is knocking for you his precious blood. He is able. He is able. He is able. Christ is able still to save. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, sing to him our songs of he is able. Oh, he is able, he is able, Christ is able still to save. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, sing to him our songs of praise. Well, hallelujah. Y'all see how Brother David skipped over all those ites in that passage? Hey, I did notice the notabites. We, we've got grandchildren like that when you put greens in front of them. <laughs> Amen. That's exactly right. No, aren't you thankful that God has delivered us from all the ites? Amen. God is good. Well, tonight we will take part in the Lord's Supper. And the Bible says, do this in remembrance of me. All right, folks. That's an imperative command. Do this in remembrance of me. So the Lord's Supper tonight as a church family, it will be at 5.30. I hope you'll come back and be a part of that. Amen. Brother David? That's it. Anything? Same All right. Good night. All right. God, God bless, bless you. you.